everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Perspectives Unsettled. I am Emily Luttrell. And I'm Ben Stewart. And with us is our producer, Noah Gray. Hello. And we have a guest this month, uh, Carolyn Edwards. Hello. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Carolyn is a chaplain at a hospital locally here in town. She's a friend of Uncharted and a friend of me. So I'm glad you're here, Carolyn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to be here. So today we're going to be talking a lot about faith and works. And because we're going to talk about a lot about work, Ben had a question he wanted to ask all of us related to that. Yes. Okay. Just to kind of like ease into this very, what could be intense conversation. Here's, here's a little bit lighthearted question. What was your first job and did you love it, hate it, or feel ambivalent towards it and why? My first job was, uh, so I worked for my cousin's husband at a golf course he was the superintendent, and uh, that involved me getting up very early in the morning oh. at like 16 years old <laughs> and getting to the golf course at like 5, 5.30 or something like that and just doing the worst jobs <laughs> on the golf course that didn't involve riding a lawnmower. So like picking up trash, cleaning out like limbs that had fallen overnight, uh, cutting the cups was about the uh the height of of my experience at that time and i did not like it at all (laughs) yeah that sounds way too early for a 16 year old to be getting up yeah understandable what about you carolyn um well um probably my first like freelanced kind of job was um accompanying people you know uh like soloists on the piano so I kind of, oh, I, yeah. I mean, really my first real job job was, um, at a bookstore and I just always wanted to work in a library or bookstore. And so I just yeah. went up to them and said, can you, will you hire me? <laughs> and they did. And, they did. <laughs> and it was, was it a like lot a of locally fun. owned, like a local um, was, bookstore was, or a Barnes and Noble type or it was B Dalton bookstore. So it's not around anymore, but I loved okay. it. So it was a lot of fun. That's cool. Hmm. That's awesome. I think my first real job was in in high school at at my high school, the building. I somehow became like the authority on setting up all the audio equipment for the theater and stage. <laughs> and so I got That's horrible. I got hired to like run dance recitals and meetings and presentations that would people would come rent out the theater at the high school and hire a 14 year old 15 year old to like run all of their presentations and everything that they did that's cool it's it sounds cool (laughs) i i really liked you know walking around with the keys and telling adults like what to do um, but after a while, there are only so many like ballet recitals you can sit through and watch <laughs> before you just really don't want to be there anymore. My first real job of any substance was working at a chemical factory where we made food dyes and food flavoring. And the most prominent memory is wearing like what amounts to be a full hazmat suit 
making the uh, food flavoring for a very well-known yogurt brand <laughs> that mm. many people still eat and that I do not eat. Uh, that um, was my question. Do you eat the yogurt? Nope. I don't eat that brand of yogurt anymore. Mm. Um, we don't have any sponsors. You can. You can say <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I wasn't sure, like legally, if I could say it or not. So mm. uh, it was a horrible job. I hated it, and it motivated me to <laughs> go on to higher education. So, how long did you work there? I worked there long enough to save up enough money to go surfing for two weeks in California. So <laughs> it was about eight and a half weeks. <laughs> so so worth it ultimately oh yeah yeah christianity is not just a list of things you're supposed to do nor is it a list of things you can't do grace and forgiveness are very real and very significant parts of christian faith and we don't want to minimize that but scripture is full of teachings on how we ought to live, what we are meant to be doing. We are forgiven, but we're also new creations and our behavior is expected to change. Paul writes that we are saved by grace and he writes a lot of instructions for how we should live. Jesus said whoever believed in him is saved and also spent a lot of time rebuking religious leaders for their actions. In James, we find a passage saying that faith without works is dead. Even if we aren't saved by our good works, it seems like our actions almost prove our salvation or give us an indication of whether or not a person is really saved. We assume we can gauge somebody's sincerity of faith by how they live, that we can discern the state of their heart by what we see them do. This often leads to two different forms of judgment and both go in very unhealthy directions. When we take this idea of seeing faith by works, and project it outward, we can fall into legalism, judgmentalism, and cynicism. Issues become polarizing and people separate themselves into camps, often eager to dismiss anyone's faith if their life doesn't match a specific image of what they consider Christ-likeness. When we project that judgment inward onto ourselves, we can fall into shame, guilt, and self-loathing. The pressure we feel to present this perfect life, to strive to attain a level of Christian nirvana can be crushing and severely disheartening when we fail. So today we're going to talk about what, if anything, do I need to do in order to really be a Christian? How do we deal with people who say they're Christians but don't act very Christ-like? And how do we navigate self-inflicted guilt when our own actions fall short of what we think is asked of us? So to start this conversation, I think we really need to look at this idea of faith and works when we're talking about our salvation and also how we're meant to live. So this idea of faith and works is really found in the book of James. And I just want to read a couple verses from James 2 so that we all know what we're talking about when we talk about faith and works. So in James 2, it says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? And then he says later, and then he says later, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is a God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So this passage, it seems to be open to a lot of interpretations. It almost sounds like 
we need to be doing a lot of stuff to prove our faith and that believing, you know, may just not be enough. So Carolyn, how do you interpret that passage? Um, I think I interpret it in light of um, other scriptures that we're going to be talking about. Um, but if I'm just looking at that passage, I, I think what he says is true, but I think that it is often misunderstood and the emphasis can go in the wrong place. Uh, if it's, if our faith is based on our connection and our focus on Christ and we are spirit led and um, it's, it's really just the richness of our relationship, then I think the works are going to happen um, and uh, we will see it in our works. So, you know, if we have a vital true faith, I think, yes, we are going to see it in the works. But I feel like people um, tend to avoid um, faith in favor of works. And so they'll say, but we got to work too. And I think it, it takes the stress and puts it in the wrong place. What about you, Ben? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think Carolyn is is uh, right on with those thoughts. You know, the way that I would maybe reiterate what she said is um, there's like a certain causality um, that exists between faith and works um, that sort of that true faith and and relationship that is entered into with with God through Christ through by faith alone that Paul talks about um, sort of naturally causes works that flow from it. Um, <clears throat> so if you think of sort of the simple analogy of of a plant or you know something organic like that a flower, I mean when you have a real living um, plant, there will be naturally, um, one of the causes of that, there will be fruit. Um, and so th that's a pretty common, maybe oversimplified analogy, but I do think um, it's an effective sort of illustration of the causality between faith and works, um, seeing how, how the one does lead to the other. And they're inseparable in a way. When the mm -hmm. faith is real, they're inseparable. Yeah. In Galatians, when Paul is talking about, you know, the fruit of the spirit, though, even the way he talks about those there, they don't sound like works. They don't sound like things we're meant to accomplish or goals we're trying to work towards. The way he talks about it is just saying like, when you're filled with the spirit, this, this is what comes out of you. It's, it's like what you're saying, Ben, it's like a flower. It's just, it's an outward sign of health and life, mm -hmm. um, coming from something else it, it's something that just happens. And then like, like Carolyn said, we kind of end up with a weird fixation on works because if, if this, if this is really how it is, if this kind of, if these works or this fruit comes naturally, why does it feel like it's so hard, um, to, to make that happen? We're, why are we working so hard and striving and accomplishing things when, when it's something that seems like it should just flow out of us? Mm -hmm. I, I think that part that is partly because we stress works and we don't stress relationship 
with God and intimacy with God. Um, so we, we don't do the very foundation or the most important thing for the works to flow through us. We just jump to works. Um, I feel like we get things like kind of mixed up and we reverse it. It's like, mm-hmm. I better work hard to prove that I have a strong faith rather than focusing on what, you know, that foundation of that intimacy with the Lord that will lead to the fruits of the spirit. And um, I actually think people are afraid of um, the intimacy. And so Mm -hmm. they prefer works because, you know, when we work, then we are in control and, you know, we can decide what we want to do or what we think we should do. But like just pursuing a relationship you know, with, with Jesus is scary to a lot of people. And mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, fears of surrender or fears of the mystery of it, or, you know, fears of being overpowered and, you know, whatever it is, I think actually people avoid that and they go to the works because it's easier and they have more control, but then the works are like completely legalistic and have no feeling and it's not coming out of the depth of relationship at all. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. And I, um, I love that you use the word control. That's exactly where um, my head was at. Also, I think that in our sort of broken human nature, we are constantly looking for what are the things that we can control. And, and it feels like works are one of those things. Um, you know, that I can try to control my behavior. I can try to control my, um, my reactions, my thoughts, whatever it is. Um, and so that's where we have this propensity to put our attention and emphasis on that. Um, and it's also interesting too, I think how like we see, I don't know if this is a Western thing, this would be an, I'm curious about this and maybe Carolyn, you, you know, the answer to this, but I don't know if this is like a, a Western culture thing, but, or a modern, probably more like a modernistic way of viewing things, but we have, it's so easy for us and natural for us to create this false dichotomy between faith and works. And yet throughout scripture, all the different authors, including James there was no dichotomy. There was, it wasn't hard for them. It wasn't a stretch for them to see how interwoven faith and works really are. And, you know, Emily, you read that James passage um, in James chapter two, and James goes on to talk about, he, he actually uses two different examples. And I love these examples because they're extreme polar opposites from each other. He talks about Abraham And he says in verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son on the altar. And then just a few verses later, he talks about Rahab, the prostitute in verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works. And so you have two extremely different people, again, like placing ourselves in a Jewish audience, you know, Abraham, this revered patriarch who is the father of this nation. And then Rahab, 
you know, a, a woman of the night, if you will, and, and just sort of identify with shame and embarrassment and awkwardness. And James is talking about how both of them, he uses the same language, justified by works. But then if you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, where you have what we call the faith chapter, mm-hmm. the author of Hebrews among other people that he references, references the same exact people, Abraham in verse, uh, well, really the middle of all of 11. And then in verse 31, Rahab. But he uses faith language. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And then Rahab, by faith, Rahab, the harlot, uh, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies, spies in peace. So it's just kind of interesting how like these New Testament authors, um, it wasn't this false dichotomy for them. It wasn't like an either or. You could interchange the language in some ways of faith and works. You could even talk about the same people in the same exact scenarios and how the faith that Abraham had in the scenario of his son Isaac led to a certain work that he performed. And the faith that Rahab had in a certain scenario led to a particular work that she performed. And uh, just kind of interesting how both Mm -hmm. authors of both of those books highlight two people who are polar opposite from each other in terms of reputation and, and elevate both the faith that they have in Hebrews chapter 11, for example, but also the work that flow from it all in the same exact scenario. Um, and I think there's something for us to learn there about, you know, we so easily dissect and separate the two. And I don't think New Testament authors really saw a lot of the separation. And both of the things that they did took a lot of faith. I mean, there's no way that right. Abraham, if he did not have faith, he could not have offered Isaac. And the same yep. thing with Rahab, she was taking a huge risk. So the action had to come from faith. That's yep. really a great point. I feel like too, sometimes it's, I mean, again, as another silly analogy, it's sort of like asking the question. So if I were to say to you like, Hey, Carolyn, are you alive right now? You'd be like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. And then if I were to ask, well, are you breathing? It's sort right. of like, well, that's a dumb question. Of course, <laughs> of course I am. Yeah. You know? And so like, sometimes I, I kind of feel like that in this discussion mm-hmm. of faith and works. It's like, well, are you saved by faith alone? Yeah. Well, well, what about works? Well, it's like, well, that's a dumb question. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Maybe that's a oversimplification. Yeah, that's great. But. So whenever Jesus is talking in John 15, he uses this analogy or parable where he says that he is the vine and the father is the gardener. And if there's a branch that doesn't bear fruit, then that branch is going to get cut off. <laughs> and that that seems to imply that to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, there are you know behaviors that will be expected or or maybe even required would be a a stronger word. Like there are moral rules that Christians are meant to follow or you know outward signs that they're supposed to do. Uh, would you guys say that is might be a simplistic or harsh reading of, of verses like that? Or is that is that a misconception that there is this sort of 
um, requirement or maybe even a set of standards that Christians should be held responsible to? I think it's about emphasis again. Um, I don't, I don't think it's um, like, if you don't do this, you're, you know, you're, it's, you're going to be chopped off. Um, Mm -hmm. If we think about the vine, um, you know, the nutrients are going through the vine and they just, it just comes to us on the branches and the fruit just happens. And there's really no effort, you know, from that illustration. It's, it's, it's just um, part of connection to the vine. And mm-hmm. what I think about that, when I, that is one of my favorite passages. But the, the emphasis for me is remain in me and I will mm-hmm. remain in you. And it's, it's, it's about staying connected to Jesus. Um, and if we are, then, you know, the, the fruit is going to naturally um, flow out of us. And there are no rules. I don't think there's necessarily anything. Um, you know, there's, it's just what he produces in us, which means that in each one of us, it's going to be something different um, based on whatever he's flowing through us. Um, so I don't think it has anything to do with um, a moral standard or a list of do's and don'ts. Um, I just, I, and I think it's, if the branch isn't producing fruit, really what it's saying is it could not have been connected to the vine. So Mm. there was not a relationship at all. Um, because I think automatically if there is a connection, there will be fruit. So I, I guess I think about it as something different than um, like a list of do's and don'ts. Yeah, I think Carolyn had some really good language in there. Um, I like that word effortless. Um, and I think that this is, you know, less about, uh, well, I'll, I'll say this in my personal opinion of, of this passage, but I, I do think it's a little bit less about the issue of salvation versus just the outworking of our relationship with the Lord and, and just the whole concept of what imbi- what abiding not only looks like and entails, but what it results in. And so even in that first, in those first two verses of John 15, when he talks about pruning, it's, it's not pruning as a condemnation, but pruning for the purpose of more fruit bearing. I mean, that's how verse two ends. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's not like God is coming in with these um, garden shears, like, ah, ha, ha, I'm chopping you down, you, you know, pathetic little bush. Um, (laughs) But it's, (laughs) which is how I typically garden. Um, (laughs) With a chainsaw. (laughs) So it's a good thing I'm not God. Uh, But, uh, but it is, you know, you see the pruning the pruning is more thoughtful. The pruning is more careful. It's more um, for the purpose of further expansion and fruitfulness rather than, um, you know, rather than judgment or condemnation mm-hmm. or, or destruction, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, you know, I'm a gardener and um, th- there's a lot of pruning that happens. I mean, pretty much every bush after it blooms, 
you're supposed to trim it. You know, yeah. so um, it's like after the forsythia bloom, then we're supposed to trim it every single year. And so, you know, really for the growth of, of the whole bush or the tree or whatever, um, pruning is actually a really good thing. Um, and it, the result is more flowers or more fruit. Um, so, you know, to look at it that way too, even though none of us want to be pruned or pruning doesn't sound like fun if you're the recipient of it. Um, but, um, you know, it does, you know, it does lead to more fruit. So, mm-hmm. so it could be more about, you know, how do we bear more fruit? Yeah. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the trouble tends to come when we equate, you know, f- any sort of mention of faith with, with just salvation. And we think like, okay, well, these are the things I have to do to out of my faith. That means these are the things I have to do to earn to for my salvation. And that's just not really presented. And even, even when we think about that, so are the only, the only reason you do something good because you're, because you think this is what you have to do. (laughs) So, so you're able to go to heaven. It's like when, it's like when people are talking about, well, the only reason I wouldn't steal something is because it's against the law. Like just, (laughs) that's not, that doesn't make it wrong, but there's, there's more heart behind it. When you think like the, I'm not doing these things because I think I have to, I'm doing these things because I want to, or because that's what naturally comes out of this relationship that I have. So before I move on, whenever we're saying works, it might be helpful to, to get a better definition because I think the first thing that comes to mind when we, we hear works is like maybe specific things to do, like no, no drinking or smoking or dancing or like not doing bad things, not stealing and giving to the poor. Um, but if we think of it more as fruit, as the fruit of the spirit, um, what, what does that look like to you as opposed to just a list of, of tasks maybe that we should check off? You know, I, I kind of, I, I, th- I think it's a day by day thing where, um, I, at least for me, it's a day by day thing of not necessarily having in, in my mind what my works will be. Um, it's more a sense of leading of what God puts in front of me and how I will respond. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like I don't have a plan ahead of time as far as what will be the things that I do, it's more about what will he lead me to do throughout the day? And will I, will I walk through the door that he opens? Um, so Mm -hmm. I, I look at obedience that way. Um, just a series of opportunities, uh, throughout the day. Um, now there could be, you know, things like, I'm not going to be so whiny today or, um, you know, I'm not going to be sarcastic today. Um, so I do have a few of those things. Um, but really like when I approach the day, it truly is what, what is like right in my face. And that is the, that's the thing I have a choice about to obey. Mm -hmm. And then, 
it's like, well, what's the next thing that's put right in front of me? And, and now I have a choice about, you know, how I'm going to respond. Um, and I, it's, I was trying to think about this because I do have this sense, uh, like very often because I work at the hospital, um, and have the opportunity to pray for a lot of people. Very often there's these inconvenient thoughts that come in my head. Like, you know, you should go pray for that person and I don't really feel like it. And, you know, (laughs) I'm like, you know, I'm going to look like an idiot kind of thing. That's what I'm saying to God. I'm going to look like an idiot. I don't want to do that, but I can't walk away. You know, I have to go do it because if I walk away, I'm going to have to come back anyway and do it. And it's not (laughs) like, I feel like God's, you know, you know, going to spank me or something if I don't do it, but it's going to be like between us for the rest of the day, between him and me (laughs) in my head. And so I'm going to do it. So, you know, very often in the day, I find myself doing things that um, are just, you know, inconvenient and but prompted and I go do them. And it's, you know, it's, it's a cool thing, you know, that, that it does happen. Um, but I have to risk sometimes looking stupid. Um, but I just know I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be done with it if I walk away from it. So, um, you know, it's, but again, it's a moment by moment thing that I look at throughout the day. And there is kind of this conversation I'm having with God. Um, and like kind of a dialogue throughout the day with the things that are presented to me. Um, at the end of the day, do I say, um, I did, did I do these certain things? No, I don't. I generally look back at all on anything that I've done. Um, I, you know, I really don't look back. Um, so I'm again, not looking at a list. Um, it's, it's just kind of a moment by moment thing for me. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, as I was listening to you talk about that, Carolyn, describe that, um, first of all, agree with it. And I think for me, maybe some of the language that I would use to, to talk about how faith and works plays out in my life is that there is a very subtle difference between um, what other smarter people have coined as moralistic deism, which is basically the idea that I believe, I believe God exists or I believe a higher being exists. And so therefore I will do good behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a difference between that versus what Paul talks about in Galatians. Um, You know, in the, and we've mentioned the, the fruit of the spirit a couple of times is sort of at the bullseye of that. But all around that passage, Paul is talking about just what a life looks like completely surrendered to and walking with is the language that he uses, walking with the Holy Spirit. And and so to recognize that on the surface in many ways, somebody who has adopted this moralistic deism, or, or you said this deistic moralism, um, it, it can look on the surface very similar to walking empowered and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. A lot of the activity on, on the surface can look the same between two, you know, the two different people, but a lot, but there's such a huge difference just between just below the surface of 
of a person who is truly surrendered to the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, understands what it means where when Paul is talking about how we have been liberated, that, that Christ has come to set us free. We have been liberated from the law, and yet we walk in, um, and yet we, we choose, we willingly and willfully surrender ourselves to the Spirit. And so um, I think for me, like, that's, that's sort of where I have to start. That's, that's like ground zero for me is really um, asking myself, honestly, am I, am I operating more in this deistic moralistic framework where I'm trying to perform and prove and justify, or am I in each part of my day, um, really surrendering myself and asking and trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to empower me to live the type of life that he has called me to live. Um, and so I think that that is like, that's the, that's the key difference. It's not, it's not a, it's not a thing. It's a, it, it is a person. It's the Holy spirit living in us that makes the key is sort of the linchpin to the conversation between faith and works. Um, because then it's not, it, it truly does take away any sense of control or ability that I have with my works and places it all on the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Well, when we have a less mature view of this topic, or even um, when we know better, but old habits die hard, and we, we return to this fixation that we have on works and accomplishing things and doing things, um, there, are, there are two forms of judgment that really rise to the surface. Um, a lot of the times just without us realizing it or knowing it or acknowledging it. Um, and one of those forms is this outward or external judgment. And this is probably the stereotypical um, understanding of, you know, the, the judgmental Christian who is condescending or contemptuous of people who do things they consider wrong or bad or live different lifestyles. And so just kind of talking through that that issue that probably a lot of us have, or definitely a lot of us think mm -hmm. we know somebody who has this issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> so whenever there are people who who say they're Christians and they they seem to just not act in a very Christ-like manner, what we consider to be a Christ-like manner, you know, the the only kind of test we have for whether or not someone is a Christian is if, if they say they are. Um, and then we, we kind of just have to take them at their word. Um, but <laughs> is there ever a time where anybody has the power or authority to just not maybe dismiss somebody's faith, but at least call it into question? Um, or is that, <laughs> is that totally just, uh, a power chip that people have, um, and just want to want to be condescending and kind of raise himself up by putting other people down. You know, it, it can be a little bit of a lot of different things. Um, I, you know, I think, um, we all can be condescending. Um, 
I think we all can be, have, we all have a little, um, we're all a little bit alike a Pharisee and have an idea of what we think a Christian should look like. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when we are running into people that don't act like it, um, you know, I, to myself, I might think, I don't think that person's a Christian. Um, I might, I'm probably not going to say it out loud, but <laughs> I, I also don't know um, what is going on in that person uh, because, you know, like we're all kind of messed up, you know, in one way or another. And mm-hmm. so there's like a path God's taking us on. And unfortunately it seems like a really slow process. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he takes his time. And so, you know, the path that, and it's not like we all work on the same thing in the same order. So, mm-hmm. you know, there could be things that God worked on in my life right away that apparently he's not yet in another person <laughs> in the way I think it should be. And, um, so you don't, we don't necessarily know, you know, what God is doing in that person. Um, so it's hard to say for sure. Um, you know, is maybe that person isn't a Christian, um, because you think how in the world could that person be a, a Christian, you know, if they do that, um, at the, uh, on the other hand, I think we can be so blind to ourselves that there's a lot of things that we do that could be really offensive to other people, and we don't even know that we're doing them. And really, mm-hmm. you know, most people are not aware of their own flaws. Um, we don't like it in others. You know, that's the, the funny thing. Um, I can't remember the book I was reading. It was talking about our dark side. And um, the, the writer has us write down like a lot of journaling where we write down the things that we hate the most in other people. And mm-hmm. um, so it will be like, who is the person that irritates you the most? And what do you not like about them? And chances are her point in the book is, is that is our problem too, um, which I hate. So I never finished the book, <laughs> but I have it. I know I need to finish it, unfortunately. Um, but um so it's very possible we have the same problem ourselves. So, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, maybe the person's not a Christian. Maybe we're worse than they are. Um, <laughs> you know, or maybe God knows what he's doing in that person and he hasn't gotten to that thing yet. Yeah, I think there's a similar point uh, to what you're saying about how the things we are most irritated by other people um, is often what's in herself. There's something that C.S. Lewis says in the Screw Tape Letters that's, you know, talking about this guy who's a Christian and he's very proud of himself for being so patient and so forgiving to all these people in his lives. And he has absolutely no idea that they're being like 10 times more graceful with him. <laughs> he just doesn't mm-hmm. see. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, I think Carolyn, you're definitely highlighting some really important postures and attitudes. Um, and, and you see, you know, you see Christ talk about that a lot. Um, probably the most well-known is, um, you know, noticing the speck in somebody else's eye, but not totally not seeing and missing the log in your own eye. Um, and so there is a Pharisee in all of us for sure. And, and I think that starting 
in that posture and with that admission and not dismissing that by any means is crucial. And at the same time, also acknowledging that I do think God has placed placed each of us in the context of certain relationships where we do have the opportunity. And I would even say from, from like a, uh, a relational standpoint, a responsibility to in, in the right way, help to help each other identify where are areas of, of growth and where are areas of, um, I mean, to use this language, like call, calling things out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I say that again, going back to that caveat of, you know, recognizing that it's, I do think God places us in those, in context of relationship where that's supposed to happen. So I think very rarely can that be done well and effectively outside the context of meaningful relationships and trusting relationships. Um, you know, maybe a, maybe one that's a little too obvious would be like my relationship with my kids. I, I would, I would be a poor, not just a poor follower of Jesus, but a poor dad. If I was like, well, I'm not going to call them out on that because mm-hmm. I've got my own sin issues and who am I to do that? No, like that's God has entrusted that relationship to me to, you know, to, to call things out and to call them to things. Um, and I think that we all in different phases and stages of our life are placed in those relational contexts where we do have the opportunity in gracious, loving, humble ways to sort of raise our hand and say, what about this? Um, and again, you see that, you know, modeled perfectly in the life of Christ where, uh, the woman caught in adultery, like he was so gracious to her. He was so tender and gentle with her and not shaming of her. He also leveled the playing field of other people around her. And yet at the same time, like he didn't leave her in the same place. He did call her towards something better and towards something different. Um, and so there are times in certain relational contexts where I think we do have a responsibility to call people towards something better. Mm-hmm. So it's not shaming them. It's not um, condemning them alone. It's calling them towards something better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of the time the the real reason we want to maybe dismiss somebody's faith because we don't think that they're doing it right, they haven't earned it, is is kind of rooted in pride in the sense that we don't want to be associated under the same banner as these kinds of people. And there are, there are very extreme examples like Westboro Baptist church that say a lot of hateful things Mm -hmm. and claim to be Christians. And it is painful to, to be considered like we're, we're the same. We, we say we believe in the same things. Um, but in a way I can't, I can't decide who is in and who is out any more than I can decide who I'm related to, you know, there it's a family relationship and I I don't have the power to kick somebody out of my family. You know, I only can just be there and be, you know, related to them. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that you see a lot through Jesus life is that he is very willing to be quick to be associated with 
all kinds mm-hmm. of people, like no matter what. Yeah. Um, he's not um, distancing himself because he is afraid to be associated with anybody. Um, he is there. And that doesn't mean he is ignoring some some big issues. Like, like you were saying, Ben, like he leaves people changed and he is not afraid of some confrontation or some calling things out. But he um, doesn't try to to pull himself away. Right. Yep, that's I, right. I think he kind of does it dep- depending on the personality. Because like with the Pharisees, um, you know, obviously he is extremely opinionated and very sharp with them and um, does question, well, you know, he'll he'll – He'll say your father is Satan. So that's yeah. He doesn't really question. He just full on like yeah. States. So, but I think sometimes yeah, right. Snakes. But um, I think you know they're so. I think it depends on the person because a person can just be so um, cemented in their pride, um, you know, that it takes something like that. I mean, like he, you almost have to make him mad. Or shake, you know, shake him up in some way, um, and so mm-hmm. Jesus did that um, with the Pharisees. So actually, he corrected a lot of people, and you know, in in very direct uh, ways, um, and really like with very harsh language. But on the other hand, um, you know, for you know a prostitute who already feels a lot of shame anyway. Um, you know, he's very tender and shows mm-hmm. love and acceptance. So I think it just depends. I mean, he knows each of those people and knows exactly, you know, what they need. Um, and I think both of those, you know, examples, I mean, I think he's, he's trying to draw them to himself, but it just yeah. takes different things for different people. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm saying that we should, you know, like do what Jesus did with the Pharisees. I don't know if that would work so well, but sometimes, sometimes where I think we may be called to do that. Yeah. I, I do think you're highlighting a good distinction, Carolyn, that um, the way, the way Jesus treated people who were very clearly um, just unaware of him and, and sort of living their own life completely separate from him and chasing chasing whatever it is they could chase the way he treated them typically was so different than the way he treated people who put a lot of stock in their, in their religiosity. And, and so, yeah, I do think there is an example or an illustration there for us to be aware of. Um, It's not a, I do think you have to be aware of, of where each individual is at, you know, somebody who, Um, you know, if there's a neighbor of mine who just is completely clueless to the concept of a relationship with God and what it means to be in a relationship with him, um, my view of their outward behavior is going to be very different than the person who claims a lot of religious things Mm -hmm. and yet acts so differently, um, Mm -hmm. you know, than, um, than what they claim, if you will. I was I was attending a virtual conference recently and one of the speakers was was an authority on institutions like um, 
government or churches and organized religion and family. And um, he was talking about one of the trends he has seen has been recorded over the past few years, maybe the past 10 years, is a, um, a decreasing trust in, in institutions. Um, and that's not just church, but it does include church. Um, but the, the idea that there is something outside of, of ourselves that tells us truth about the way life is or should be, um, tells us truth or, um, tells us what our role should be in, in any of those places. Uh, people are turning away from that and turning more towards them, themselves. Um, the messages that are being put out, especially to younger generations, is that nobody is allowed to tell you anything that no one's allowed to assign something to you. The You know yourself better than anybody else possibly could. You, sh- you can't be um, defined or assigned or told what to be um, by anything other than yourself. And this kind of devaluing of, of an authority can make it really hard when we're trying to appeal to something higher uh, than ourselves when we're talking about like, well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. So like what's, what's good for me uh, is good for me and what's good for you is good for you and they may not be the same thing uh, and that's okay. Um, so it can be hard sometimes even in like a church setting in relationships between Christians of like whose definition of of Christ-like behavior wins in a sense. Like there's a lot of polarizing of topics, especially in our cultural climate and political climate. People on either side of camps are looking at the other and saying like, oh, well, you can't really be a Christian or you're not doing it right because you stand for these things and, you know, getting said the same thing back um, to each other. So is there... A way other than just looking at the life of Jesus and trying uh, to model it best ourselves, is there a way we can kind of like address these things and figure out how to come to conclusions when people both believe in two very different kind of lifestyles or moral philosophies, both saying that they are Christ-like and Christian and they're just at odds with each other? You know, I, I, I feel like the biggest problem, the the biggest thing missing is um, that we're not listening to each other and um, that we have a lot to learn from each other. Um, so yes, there's a lot of different views. And yes, I probably think my view is more correct than another person's. <laughs> um, like I do think generally that I do know what I'm talking about (laughs) and I'm right. Um, but, um, so, you know, but just because I think I'm right, does that mean that I don't listen? Um, you know, and there's, there's certain like groups of people that we are trying to listen better, but I found that I have a hard time listening to groups that make me angry or, you know, I totally disagree with, um, probably mm-hmm. more legalistic groups. Um, but the biggest, you know, uh, the thing that I see, especially like in politics is nobody is, or, you know, just when we have different opposing views is nobody is listening to each other. And, you know, we really just need to be talking to each other and dialoguing 
Um, and mm-hmm. I, everybody again is a Pharisee in a sense. Um, we all, ha- we have our value systems. Um, sometimes it's based on scripture. Sometimes it's just based on a religious group of people and the religious culture that that person is in. Um, you know, we all have that and we all think we're right generally, unless we're mm-hmm. insecure. I mean, you know, if, <laughs> if you have a deep insecurity, you don't think you're right about anything. Um, so to me, I, you know, if I, if I go to a person that we all clearly know is wrong <laughs> based on our def- definition, because I think the four of us would be in agreement about many things. And then we went, well, what makes me any different? Um, am, am I now the judgy person? You know, am I the superior, arrogant person? Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that actually answered the question. Um, mm-hmm. but there's your answer from me. So, <laughs> so this kind of external outward judgment is something that is very stereotypical of a lot of Christian communities and something that's pretty easy to recognize. But there's also this sort of inward internal judgment that is maybe harder to to talk about um, or to to recognize even, but it's still present. And whenever there's this kind of standard that we think people are held to, we always fall short. And then <laughs> depending on how important we see that standard, we can feel, you know, shame, guilt. We can feel like hypocrites. People tend to be very hard on themselves. Um, and maybe this is something that is rising. Um, as I see it a lot in, in people that I know and I spend a lot of time with is just this sense that, you know, I'm bad at this. I'm a bad Christian and I'm supposed to be a good Christian and I just can't quite get there. Um, and ends up causing a lot of anxiety and guilt. And so we we kind of all end up struggling with this question of like, how much am I supposed to be doing? You know, is there is there a checklist maybe somewhere where it says, are you a Christian? Do you X, Y, and Z? And then you're done. You got it. You've moved on. Um, is, is there any sort of gauge of, you know, this is what I need to do. And this is how I... And I can feel good about myself once I've done it. Or how are we supposed to navigate that whole um, like uneasiness that we find ourselves in a lot of the time? Um, I think part of the uneasiness, okay, first of all, we all feel like we are not doing good, a good job. We all feel like we're falling short. But the bottom line is we actually are falling short. And I think that there's actually an unconscious thought that we actually could do what we're supposed to do and be a good Christian. But really, I mean, that's what gets us in trouble, actually. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the freedom comes in just saying, yeah, I do fall short every day. And I fall short like every hour. And to have the freedom to know, I do. And I actually cannot do anything myself to improve this situation. Um, Mm -hmm. Because if I think I can, I will just continue in this cycle of, you know, somehow having this false hope 
that I can make myself better and I can make myself into a good Christian. Um, I think there's freedom in just saying I can't. Um, mm-hmm. And I, that's where I have found my freedom. I, because it's just like, let's just be honest about where we're at. And apparently I can't, I can't do anything about it because that gets us to the place where we are completely dependent on grace and um, that he has to do it for us. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, yes, we will keep coming back to him and asking for forgiveness. Um, but I, I, I don't know if I'm really saying it very well, but I just somehow think that if we ever think that we can make ourselves a good Christian ourselves, then we are going to fall into this trap um, and have that guilt and shame over and over and over again. And we, so we need to just realize we can't. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, the way that I would maybe answer that question is, well, actually, the way I'd respond to that question is recognizing that really, Emily, the question you're asking is taking this conversation from behavior to a deeper level of uh, about identity and position. Mm-hmm. And so a person will never be able to overcome a sense of, have I done enough? Um, a person will never be able to overcome a sense of, of anxiety or question or doubt or even fear about the, the level of their behavior until a person has really embraced the identity and the position that is secured for them on their behalf um, by Jesus when they mm-hmm. enter a relationship with him. And mm-hmm. so, and so really the answer to the question isn't how do I overcome this? The answer to the question is, have I embraced the identity of who I am? Um, that I am a son or I am a daughter of God, and I I am positionally free from condemnation. I'm posi- positionally free. Uh, I am positionally viewed as completely righteous by by God through through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what Paul's whole argument in Romans um, five, six, seven, and eight. This is why he says in in verse eight, "There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." Why? Because of our behavior? No, because of our position and because of our identity. So you you're at, by asking that question, you're actually taking this conversation really to the level that the conversation needs to be happening, which is a conversation about the identity of a follower of Jesus, the position of a follower of Jesus. And when there is a core level of security around those things, that's that is what influences and shapes the way we view works. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like that's how in my own personal life, I mean, I, I remember very vividly becoming a follower of Jesus when I was five, but mm-hmm. I also remember more powerfully and vividly um, when I really understood this uh, when I was about 17 or 18, like just the pos- my position as as God's son, my position as someone who is proclaimed and and deemed righteous because of Jesus, uh, Mm -hmm. that completely, like my life looked the same from, you know, two, two days before that realization and two days after, 
but it flowed from a completely different understanding of who, who I am in Christ. Um, so I think that's for me, like where a lot of this conversation comes down to is just our understanding, like that's what obliterates the shame. That's what obliterates the condemnation. That's what obliterates the, the self piety and the self righteousness and the Mm -hmm. internal drive to like, how much do I have to do? Mm -hmm. What obliterates it is really understanding our identity and our position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like with what you were saying, we tend to conflate our actions with um, our worthiness. Like Mm -hmm. they, they determine um, something about our value, which is right. You know, not biblical and not true. And, um, I was, I was listening to a podcast recently that had a psychologist on and he was talking about this idea of contempt and disgust. Um, those two feelings are very closely linked in our brains. And what they end up doing is they dehumanize people or they, they lower human dignity and value. And we see things we have contempt for as less than human. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, commentary on how how much we value those things and how they're worthy and that's true for for other people that we have contempt for and it's also true for ourselves whenever we turn that contempt onto our own identities i think that we can go back and forth um between like sometimes we're going to have contempt towards others and sometimes we're going to have contempt for ourselves um when it comes to shame um And I think contempt is what we do to cope with shame a lot of the time because shame is pretty scary. Um, But it, it seems that we go one way or the other. So as we embrace our identities as, you know, solid in Christ and we are able to like move, if not out of completely, at least forward um, from these shames of guilt in from these cycles of guilt and shame, how, how can we show ourselves grace? Um, I think that's something that we don't really think of very much um, of how we can learn to forgive ourselves. Um, is It seems a lot harder in some ways than forgiving others, even though that can be extremely hard itself. Um, but what are ways that you guys think would be good uh, practices or postures to take uh, when we find ourselves um, maybe losing that that sh- that firm grip of our identity and our worthiness. You know, a lot of times I hear people um, say, "I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself." I hear that mm-hmm. a lot. But I'm I'm thinking that if we if we're saying, "Yes, God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself." I think we need to think about what that's really saying because then what we're saying is somehow we have a higher standard than God. Like somehow Mm -hmm. we're superior to God in some way. (laughs) And so I actually think it's arrogant Mm -hmm. not to uh, forgive ourselves. Um, I think it's a way of um, staying in control because we, you know, to be forgiven takes away the control. It takes away our control. If we have to self atone and keep punishing ourselves, then somehow we have control. Um, And so I actually think 
that it's arrogant um, to say, I know for God gives me, but I can't forgive myself. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually think it's insulting to God. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, to realize that, because I think when people say it, they think they're being humble, you know, yeah. or repentant, mm-hmm. but really, you know, it's not humble. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just think sometimes we have to make a choice. Um, you know, faith is a choice in a sense. Um, we're, we're taking a leap of faith to choose to believe something and, you know, to believe that we're forgiven and that we really have a clean slate is a choice to believe. Um, and, and then maybe it's a matter of controlling our mind. Like, are we going to just keep dwelling on this, you know, and keep beating ourselves up? Um, or are we going to reframe how we're thinking about this? And so we make Mm -hmm. a choice of how we think about it. It's really good. Yeah. I I like how you point that out, that it's actually a false humility. It's a spirit of arrogance. Um, I think that's a really good calling out and identifying of what that is. And, you know, I I think maybe the only thing I would add to that or lay over that is just a reminder to that, you know, like Ephesians 6 says that our our battle's not against flesh and blood. And so there, I, I do believe there's an element of, of our spiritual enemy um, sort of heaping on or, or laying on um, elements of, of shame and condemnation. And I do think there's a level of needing to resist that, you know, needing to, to put on the, God's full armor and to put on the help. There's a reason why scripture talks about the helmet of salvation. Like I need to, I need to be reminded um, um, of, of what my, how beautiful and how rich and how freeing my salvation is the salvation that God has given to me. It really is. And so um, there, I do think that there's an element of, there's a spiritual battleground in which this takes place as well. And Mm -hmm. we need to be reminded of that. You know, this isn't just, this isn't just my own flesh and blood I'm battling with. There's a spiritual realm as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing that I find is helpful for me is having um, some friends that I respect and that are trustworthy and just being able to be open and vulnerable with them and giving them the opportunity to show me grace Um, I I have some friends who are very quick to say like, Hey, that thing you just said about yourself, that's not true. Or like, that is not from God. That's not something that he would say to you. Um, and that's sometimes I just need like a very tangible, obvious reminder of someone correcting me, um, or just realigning me. Um, and that's not, uh, condemning or or anything but someone just being able to to show me grace uh to remind myself that like this is this is available to me and this is open to me and it's given um by by my family by my family in christ and by god it's just freely given and that i am able to or i have the power to accept it um it is always available to me. You know, like I've, I'm kind of reflecting back on everything that we just said. And 
you know, back to faith versus works. Um, if, if there's something that I can say, this is really what I would want people to have, you know, the takeaway is really, I think we just need to focus on our relationship with Christ. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and as, you know, Ben said, you know, to, to keep being filled with the spirit and in be spirit led. And, um, I really think that has to be our focus completely, mm-hmm. 100%. Um, and people don't want it to be there, but really, you know, when we are producing, you know, the works that God would want us to do, it's only going to co- come out of that connection with him. Um, and I don't think it can happen any other way. So I'm more of a person that would probably throw out works um, because I just feel like we as Christians tend to be legalistic and go there and we avoid intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just think we need to, um, you know, get away from the distractions from intimacy and just go for it and, you know, keep our eyes on Jesus um, who's, you know, the author and perfecter of our faith, um, and just say that, I, you know, I would dare or challenge people. And I, and I need to challenge myself again, um, even thinking about this, um, that I need, you know, just to say, okay, my focus is Jesus and I'm going to keep my eyes on him and then we'll just see what happens and don't worry about the works. Just, you know, just stay connected to him and that's it. Um, so that's, you know, my takeaway and, um, you know, the, the thing, as I was kind of thinking about things today, it's like, it always comes back to that, to that for me. You heard it here first, guys. Carolyn says no works. We don't need them anymore. (laughs) That is right. And now, dear friends, may the works of your faith truly flow from the spring of grace and travel along the shores of joy. May the Spirit remove from the works of your faith any motivation of self-righteousness, anxiety of self-justification, or air of self-piety. May the works of your faith be effortless, full of sacrifice, costly, and bearing much fruit, but still effortless. Effortless in the same way an artist agonizes over a masterpiece they love, staring at it for hours, pushing themselves, correcting, carefully moving towards completion, filled with the joy of their labor. Effortless in the same way that a lover will go to great lengths to woo and win their soulmate, sacrificing much, putting aside their own needs, serving, pursuing, giving yet doing so out of a sense of joy and delight, not at all out of duty or begrudging the love that drives them. So dear friends, may the works of your faith seem effortless, natural. May they reflect a reality that is already settled through grace, that you are loved. May your works be a true outpouring and natural fruit of that love. May you see in your everyday life that faith and works are not at odds. One is the natural outpouring of the other. So let's live by grace 
daily expressing the works of faith our Father has set before us. 